So with that, let's take God's word in our hands and let's continue in our series that we've entitled uh, Strangers in a Strange Land. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 1016. And we are uh, midway through the third chapter of this five-chapter book that was written by Peter, a Galilean fisherman, who, uh, though he had difficulties at first being a follower of Jesus Christ, would prove to be a steadfast and devout follower uh, of the way of Christianity and the way of Christ. He would become a chief leader within the early church. And as we've been studying these uh, now three chapters, we've seen two major themes. And I don't want to take a long time to address this this morning, but as a way of review in chapter one, we studied our great salvation that we have been born into a living hope and we've been brought into an inheritance that will not fade or spoil or perish. And that salvation has enabled us uh, to have a great privilege of having the a person of the Holy Spirit reside within each and every one of us if we call ourselves a child of God. And then in chapter 2, Peter moves on to the subject matter of uh, submitting. And we talked about the need to submit. And the reason why Peter does that is after telling us that we have a place and a kingdom uh, that is not of this world, we need to be reminded that our relationships and um, our uh, engagements with this world are not put by the wayside. You see, some of us get so heavenly minded that we forget that we're called to an earthly good. And so Peter reminds us that just because we have a home in glory, just because we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven, we still are called to be good citizens. We're still called to be good employees. We're called to be good spouses. We are called to be a good people. And that's gonna lead us then, no matter how good we are, we're gonna learn today and in the weeks to come that the third theme that Peter wants to address is the issue of suffering. And we're going to be addressing this uh, over the next couple weeks, and we're going to see even next week that Jesus himself suffered greatly. And what a great reminder for us as we move into the Easter season, a reminder of what Christ did on the cross uh, for you and me. And so let's look at this issue of suffering under the heading today that I would like to call Bad Moon Rising, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But let us stand for the reading of God's word, and then let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, the word of the Lord says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if, you, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father God, I want to look at this text this morning from a pastoral point of view. Lord, you know my heart and my desire is to, to teach a people that I call my friends and my family. And Lord, I want to be reminded today and I want to remind people today that suffering is coming. And so Lord, from my heart, I want to share to the hearts of the people. But Lord, to do that, it will not take eloquence of speech. It will not 
uh, take uh, the strength of my words, Lord, but by the moving of your spirit. So I pray, Lord, that we would calm our hearts now, that we'd be ready to receive your word, and that we would be ready to hear what your word has to say because you tell us that we need to be ready both in season and out of season. We need to be ready at all times and in all ways to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be able to teach well today this truth and that we would leave all the more ready to do what we're called by Scripture to do. So, Lord, let your Spirit descend upon us. Let us fill us. And, Lord, let us be filled with your truth now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage and as I meditated on this passage, a a classic uh, song came to mind. Many of you know the song uh, Bad Moon Horizon by Credence Clearwater Revival it was written in 1969. And John Fogarty wrote these words and he was asked by a, a magazine, why did this theme of the Bad Moon Horizon come into being a song? And he said that the impetus of this song was what Fogarty calls the per- personal apocalypses that visit us all, the personal apocalypses that visit us all. He would go on to say that this song would speak of trials and tribulations and suffering and pain that each of us face at different times in our following ways. But this was not a Christian song in the least bit. It was just a secular song. And yet this is what he pens for that song. I see the bad moon horizon. I see trouble on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today. So he says, don't go around tonight. Well, it's bound to take your life. There's a bad moon on the rise. In the second verse, he says, I hear hurricanes a-blowing. I know the end is coming soon. I fear rivers are overflowing. I hear the voice of rage and ruin. So don't go around tonight because it's bound to take your life. Because there's a bad moon on the rise. When John Fogarty looked to the days that were coming, he knew that those days would be filled with trouble. I don't know, and I don't think John Fogarty knew that he was getting his inspiration from 1 Peter. You see, 1 Peter is telling us today and in the texts that are before us in the weeks to come, that there's a bad moon rising. There's trouble coming along the way. Suffering is going to be a part of the life of the people of God. In Peter's original audience, suffering had had started, but it had not seen its full extent. People were beginning to feel the pain of suffering and persecution in their lives, but it hadn't gotten to its fullest extent. And so Peter announces and sounds the alarm, get ready because bad days are coming. Trouble is on its way. It doesn't take us long by reading the newspaper and seeing the TV news to know that for the Christian, bad days are coming. For us who have enjoyed great freedom and great prosperity and great opportunities to recognize that suffering for the believer is coming. But even as we look at it from a cultural standpoint, we need to recognize as well that suffering is a part of our everyday life. And we're going to see that the need for us to understand what Peter is saying is because in this world there will be suffering. And Peter begins to unveil what we can do in our times of suffering. You see, suffering is something that the church must be prepared for. 
We've got to be ready for it. One of the chief goals that I have as a pastor is to prepare people for their times where they will suffer the most. To teach people to embrace suffering for the sake of God and his glory. So that in our times of suffering, we may live out, just to turn the page if you need to, to 1 Peter 4.19, that we would live that out as we suffer. When the bad times come and the bad news hits us, when the difficulties come our way, that we would therefore let those who suffer, suffer according to God's will, that we would entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That when your heart's breaking at its greatest point, that you would turn to God and give him glory and entrust your life by faith that as dark as your days may be, that God still reigns supreme and that God does truly work all things out for the good. It is in those moments that as a pastor, I want us as a people to be ready. So as we live out this ministry of preparing our people for suffering, Let's examine Peter's uh, passage before us under three headings. We're going to look at our suffering is inevitable. We're going to engage in understanding that our situation can be intimidating. And then we're going to see that God's strategy is impacting. That's where we want to go this morning so that my desire is that you and I would understand that there's going to be trouble that's going to come along the way. It may come tomorrow. It may come on some random Tuesday in a year or two from now, but that we need to be ready for suffering and that when we pattern ourselves behind God's word and we recognize the place that God has amidst our suffering, that you and I will find joy amidst that suffering and that we will recognize that God's giving us an opportunity to share with the world around us the reason that the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So that's my aim this morning, and my prayer is by the Holy Spirit we'll be able to see this through. So notice, first of all, this morning that our suffering is inevitable. Notice in our passage this morning, we're not going to address everything in the passage, and we'll come back to it because it's going to kick off this whole subject matter on suffering, so we'll get to all of it at some point in the coming weeks. But notice in the passage six times... Peter shares some words that should disturb us. He uses words like harm and suffer and troubled and fear, slandered and reviled. These aren't words that make you smile on a Sunday morning. These are words that grip us. These are words that say, but I don't want that, Peter. Why does it have to be that way, Peter? You see, these words that he speaks, this verbiage, tells us and reminds us that we are going to live in a world that isn't going to be all that nice to us as human beings. And it will be even more difficult for us if we call God our Father in heaven. Now, this truth is not just seen here in 1 Peter, but notice that this truth is seen in many passages throughout Scripture. Write that down this morning. This issue that suffering is inevitable is seen all throughout the passages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, Job chapter 5, verse 7 says that a man is born to trouble. Just as sparks fly upward. So the reality is that when you start a fire, the sparks go up. Well, that happens all the time. You never see sparks going sideways or down. They're always going up in a fire. And we need to recognize just as that is a truism with a fire, so is a man born to trouble. 
In John 16, Jesus, in spending time with his disciples, giving his kind of last words of, of comfort and care and instruction in the upper room, Jesus looks to his disciples and he utters the words in John 16, in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. There's going to be issues and struggles. You're going to cry. You're going to mourn. You're going to have times of great darkness in your life. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And some of you are recognizing that this week. This week has not been an easy week for you. Maybe this last month or this last year hasn't been an easy one. Well, Jesus was telling the truth. In this world, you and I will have trouble. Suffering is inevitable. James tells us that as Christians, we are to count our trials Joy, we're to count them all joy. But notice he says in, in James 1, 2, that we are to when we experience trials of many kinds. What that means is James isn't saying that suffering is, just comes in the same package and in the same ways and as if we can kind of get used to the same type of suffering. But that our trials are going to come in various ways. So right when you think you've overtaken one suffering or one sorrow in your life, another one comes and it comes totally different in a way that you're totally unready for, and yet James says we need to count them joy when trials of many kinds come our way. Peter tells us that because of the inevitability of this suffering, that we should not be surprised. Notice in verse 12 of chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You see, when you get that random uh, medical report on a Tuesday, or the bad news comes, when divorce papers come your way, when the money runs out, when you learn a loved one has died, in those moments, you don't need to wring your hand as a Christian and say, wait a minute. I was watching the TV and the preacher said that if I follow God and I do what he says and I give my money to the preacher on TV, then my life is going to be all great. Let me tell you something, that's garbage. The Bible tells us in this world we'll have trouble. In this world you're going to suffer. And so when you suffer, when bad things come to you, Christian, don't sit there and go, why God? Why is this happening? This seems out of place. No, suffering is going to be commonplace in the life of the believer. So Peter says, don't be surprised by it. It's going to come. And so what we need to do as a church is be ready for it. The truth of what Jesus said in John 16, is seen even in Jesus' own life. Jesus endured trials. He endured temptation here on earth. And as a result of that, I am glad that the Bible speaks clearly about it. I'm so glad the Bible doesn't just superficially deal with this issue of suffering, doesn't give some just pleasant platitudes or some fortune cookie kind of answer. Well, when suffering comes, good luck. You see, one of the larger books of the Bible, the book of Job, addresses this issue squarely. The books of Jeremiah and Habakkuk tell us how we are to deal with suffering. And it does so in a way that is honest. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce that fine name, asks the question, why? Why is suffering happening? Why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? 
A third of the Psalms, the prayers of the Old Testament, are cries aloud with issues of doubt and disappointment, persecution and pain. And yet when the New Testament rolls around, suffering goes from being a place where we find questions, does God care or where was God when this happened? Or has God forgotten to be merciful to his people? But in the New Testament, we see that the issue of suffering is dealt with with a spirit of joy and confidence and hope. As Christians, you and I can have joy and confidence and hope in a world of suffering because we're not overwhelmed by it. And the reason we're not overwhelmed by it, the reason why the New Testament could, if you will, flip the argument of asking questions to standing secure is one reason, and that is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came, he lived a life that brought pain and suffering to the second person of the Trinity so that he may give his life for us so that you and I may have hope. And as a result of that, when suffering comes, even though it is inevitable, as Peter lays out before us this morning, we need to recognize before we even get into the text that Jesus has shared some promises with us. Write that down in your outline. There's a promise that Jesus gives. And so Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have suffering. You're going to have trouble. And I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, okay, guys, in this world, you're going to have trouble, so good luck. I'm glad he doesn't say, gee whiz, guys, it sure is rough out there, isn't it? I wish I had a word for you. I got to be honest with you, I'm dealing with some issues right now that I'm not sure what to do with them. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Likewise, Jesus doesn't say, in this world you're going to have trouble. And he goes on in the passage to say, but take heart. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't say, you know, hey, just look on the bright side, and maybe he had just come away, and, and please humor me for a moment. Jesus doesn't just start uh, uh, reciting the great song from Annie. That he doesn't sit there and say, hey, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar there'll be a tomorrow. Or whatever the song goes, I can't remember. He says, there'll be sun. No, Jesus doesn't say that either. You see, we get that idea. We get that idea that Jesus just said, everything will be fine. No, Jesus says this. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Suffering is inevitable. But take heart. Be of good courage. Why? And I'm so thankful he answers that. Because I have overcome the world. What Jesus is telling us, Village Bible Church, is that you're going to suffer. But you can be of good courage. You can be filled with joy. Not because Jesus says just be happy, don't worry, be happy. Jesus says the reason why you can have that courage, you can have that joy, you can have that hope and confidence is because, and hear me out, make this get into your thick skulls this morning, that Jesus reigns supreme over suffering. So whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever brings you fear and doubt and concern this morning, Whatever trouble is on the horizon for us as believers as a body or as us as believers in the singular form, you need to recognize, you need to recognize this morning that Jesus reigns supreme over all suffering, all trials, all temptations, and all tribulation. Because if you don't get that, you're in trouble. Because the world is going to beat you up, and you're not going to know why. 
But when you get your attention to focus in that while suffering is inevitable, that God reigns over suffering, then Peter's got a word for you this morning. Because notice what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that the suffering comes. Now, now I, I want to just take, again, it being very pastoral this morning, I want to take a moment and I want to just walk through some of the reasons why suffering happens. Because some of you are going to ask the question, why? Why does suffering take place? Why? Number one, suffering happens. And write this on the side of your outline somewhere. Su- suffering comes as a result, first of all, of sin. This is clearly seen in the life of King David. The latter part of King David's life, while the first part was a man after God's own heart, David really went through a hard time, and the reason was, was because of one stroll, one evening, on his palace roof. And one moment, one look too long, one second look at a woman bathing, would begin to unveil a whole group of decisions, sinful decisions, that David would make. And as a result of that, David's family would be out of order. And there would be murder and sexual uh, issues within his marriage and struggles within his marriage. He would have a son chasing after him, wanting to kill him. Why would all that happen? Because David chose to lust after Bathsheba. And some of us are dealing with some real struggles right now and some real suffering right now. And you may be asking the question, why? And I'm going to tell you, look back in your life. Is there sin in your life that has caused the unveiling of all of these consequences? Because sin can bring forth suffering. But it's not the only way. So we need to be real careful, by the way, when we watch on TV and some natural disaster happens and some preacher gets on and he says, the reason why people died was because of sin. In some ways, they may be right. Yeah, that is the the basis of all of death is sin. But to pinpoint it on that thing, let's be careful. Let's not be so quick to announce that. But notice the second one is sanctification is a reason for suffering. God uses trials and tribulation and persecution in our lives to remove things like pride and self-reliance from his child. He allows such things so that our hearts will be growing for him and his priorities. Well, where do we see this in Scripture? The Bible's clear that in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, Paul is honoring God. He's serving God. He's sharing the good news of the gospel with all who will listen. And yet Paul says, amidst his obedience, God allows a messenger of torment we don't know what it is. Some say it was his blindness. Others say it was some sort of demonic force. Whatever it was, God allowed Paul to suffer so that Paul would be able to say in that moment of suffering that God's grace is sufficient and that God's power is made perfect when you and I are in our times of weakness. So God says to Paul, I want to teach you some things. I want to grow you. And the only way I can do it is to allow you to suffer. And some of us need to understand that God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. We need to understand and grow from that, but he has to bring us low so that one day he can lift us up. The third way or reason that suffering comes is because we live in an evil society. We live in an evil society. Each one of us have no doubt felt the pain that comes with social ostracism and, and at times even a rebuke from the unbelieving world. I've lost friends because of my stance for Christ. 
I've not been invited to events and gatherings in my neighborhood because people know I'm a follower of Christ. And it hurts. Now, you know me. I, I'm, I don't want to be popular. That's not my, my thing. I've matured beyond that. But I want to be, I, I be invited to those things. I see them hanging out down the street. I want to be there. That's suffering for Christ. Because it's not that I'm not there because they don't think I'm a nice guy or a funny guy or that Amanda's a pain to have around. That's not the issue. The issue is they know who we are. We've been open with them. And so they will say, you know what, the Badals probably aren't into this thing. And so we're not going to invite them. I get it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And this is suffering. It may not be heavy suffering, but it's suffering nonetheless. And so we need to recognize that just being a part of a society that likes to do things contrary to God and his word and pursue things, conversation and, and, and things, that, that at times we're going to be the odd man on the outside. Notice number four, spiritual warfare can be a reason for suffering. The life of Job is a great example of this. That something that's taking place in the heavenly realms finds its impact in the earthly realm. Remember, it's the devil that comes to the throne of God, and uh, they begin to have a conversation, and Job's name comes up. And the devil takes an opportunity, by permission of God himself, to wreak havoc in Job's life. And that's exactly what happens. And Job suffers as a direct result of what God is wanting to prove to the devil, and that is even amidst suffering that the people of God will rejoice and praise the name of our Father in heaven. And so maybe you're suffering today because of something that's outside of this world. And maybe the devil has sought to wreak havoc in your life and God has given him permission to do so. Suffering can happen as a result of that. But there are also, amidst all of these things, and maybe there may be others, but I've only got a limited amount of time today. And so the f final reason that suffering comes is what I call the secret reasons. It's hard to know sometimes why we suffer. Sometimes there are things that happen that just don't make any sense. Last night, or yesterday afternoon, my family went to the funeral of one of uh, Luke's uh, preschool uh, friends. Um, their little brother, 15 months old, died suddenly. Healthy little boy, got sick, flu-like symptoms, in a matter of a day was dead. And I'll tell you what, when we walked by that little casket with that little boy, beautiful little boy, 15 months old, let me tell you something. If you go to a pastor and you ask what in the world happened, tell me why something like this happens. And if your pastor is able to give you all the answers in the world, they went to seminary too long because there's not an answer for that. We don't know. And so what a good pastor does when that kind of stuff takes place is we just hug on people and we love them. And what we remind people of is I don't get it either, but God does all things well. And God has a plan. And it doesn't make sense right now. And, I, and, 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 and there may be a myriad of reasons why it happened. And we're never going to know until, to, until we get to glory. But what we do know is God is working all things out for the good. 
And we're just going to love on you. And we're going to remind you of the promises of God. That while there may be mourning in the evening, there will be laughter in the morning. So take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. God is supreme, brothers and sisters. God is supreme. God is sovereign over all suffering, over all persecution. And so Peter, when he announces these words, you say, when are you going to get to the text? I'm in the text. Let's get there, okay? He says, now, who is going to harm you? If you are zealous for doing what is good, why would you suffer if you do what is right? There's a two-pronged focus in this statement. What Peter is saying is there's a truism, a proverb. As if you serve those around you well, if you honor God and you serve God well as a citizen, as an employee, as a spouse, as a neighbor, as a friend then there's a good chance that as you serve God well in the world around you, no matter how evil the world is, one of God's common graces is, is that it's highly unlikely in our world that if you're doing good that someone's going to come and get a pound of flesh out of you. We don't hear very often that people are wronged. It's out of the ordinary usually that someone is doing good and then has suffering come as a result of it. And so we need to understand that one way we can protect ourselves from undue suffering in our life is to be zealots for what is good. Serve people well. What that means, as Peter says, is that if you're a pain in the rear, pardon my expression, if you're a pain, then you are going to invite upon yourself some real suffering in this world. And so Peter says you don't want that extra suffering, you don't want that undue stress, then live according to God's word and live well amongst the people around you as strangers in a strange land. But notice he doesn't promise it. Notice he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness in verse 14. What he's saying is, is hey, just because it's a proverb, because it's a truism that if you do right and treat people well, they will treat you in kind that there are times where you will suffer even for doing good, notice what he says. Who's going to harm you? Now, i got to bring up Stephen for a moment from Acts chapter 7. Talk about a guy who was a zealot for being good, dedicated his life as a deacon to the service of the body of Christ. He's serving people. One of his jobs early on was to be a servant uh, to the Hellenistic uh, widows, to serve them food and to make sure they were cared for. This is an upstanding guy. He's preaching Christ to his neighbors and to uh, the people in his sphere uh, of living. And what do they do? They throw rocks at him. They start stoning him. And what does he do in that moment? He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scream at them. He looks to the heavens and he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, you can't get any better than this. And what does he get? He gets a death sentence. And so what would Peter's words have to say to Stephen in Acts chapter 7? What Peter says is, hey, Stephen, who's going to harm you? Now, wait a minute. The guy's losing his life. And what Peter is reminding us of is no matter the hardship and the struggles that come our way, Village Bible Church, listen to me, the worst thing that the world can do is kill you. Now let that sink in this morning. The worst thing that the world can do to us is kill us. Now let's bring some theology into this. 
Who is going to harm you? In the long run, what can man do to us? It's the question the scripture asks. What can man do to us? They can kill you. That's the ballgame. Because once they kill you, it's not like they can do anything more. You know, you're not going to sit there. They kill us for preaching the gospel, and then they're going to mock us. Well, who really cares? You're dead. And so let's bring a theology to this. Stephen, Peter says, the worst thing that you can have happen to you is you can be stoned to death. And then Paul's words remind us that when, Stephen, you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. Sounds like a win-win situation to me, doesn't it? But we don't look at it that way. And so as a result of that, we start living in fear. And so notice what he says. My second point is that our situation can be intimidating. What he says is, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In verse 14, Peter says, I don't want you to fear. Now, why would he say that? Because Peter knows what it's like to be in an intimidating situation. Peter remembers when the men came to the garden on that day of Jesus' arrest. And they took hold of him. And Peter had enough gumption, if you will, to pick up his sword and start swinging it. But after that, when things really start to get hairy for him, he and the other disciples go running. And so he recognizes what the people of God should understand, that in our world there will be trouble, and trouble is a scary thing. And he remembers the fear that he had when the Romans came. He ran for his life. And so he says, hey, I don't want you to do the same thing. So notice what he says. He says, when he says, do not have literally a phobia, phobos, have no phobos of them, nor be troubled. Do not fear the fear of them, is literally what the text is saying. Don't be troubled by what man can do to you. Again, the worst thing they can do is kill you. And if they kill you, you're with the Lord. Praise the Lord. I had an opportunity a week and a half ago to speak at our local high school for an awards banquet. And anytime you go into that opportunity, have that opportunity, you go in some ways to a hostile crowd. Public school, you know what they say. Can't say anything about Jesus. Well, you invited the wrong person. Okay. And the devil was really beating me up. It was a tough first part of the week. A lot of things were going on. But the Lord had given me a message that I was confident would be a blessing to those who were listening. And in my former high school, in the public school in my town, I was given the opportunity, the podium, to proclaim the gospel. I don't know if they knew exactly what that invitation meant, but that's how I interpreted it. But when I was eating the meal... At the banquet, it was whispered to me, hey, that teacher over there is not a fan of Christianity. In fact, she fights it wherever she can get it. And I got to be honest with you, fear gripped my heart. And I began thinking, what ifs? Should I change my statement here? Should I rephrase this statement here? Is there a, a, a more generic way of putting this? And the devil started wreaking havoc in my life. And then God said, what is your problem, Badal? 
you are the biggest wimp I know. I mean, my goodness, you're six feet four inches tall. I won't tell you how much I weigh. You're bald. You got a go, go, uh, goatee. I mean, my goodness, what more do you need in a body stature? And you're fearful. Are you kidding me? And God said this to me as I was sitting there. In the quietness of that moment, he says, what are they going to do to you? They're going to throw things at you? You can take it. They're going to mock you? They're going to get up and be angry? That happens a lot at church. I mean, what are they going to do? You're here for a reason. I didn't bring you here just to talk about the weather. I brought you here to talk about the change that Christ has made in your life. You're going to do it. And what happens in the church today, and I'm talking here in the American church, we are fearful about proclaiming the reason for the hope we have. Why? We live in a country that gives great freedoms. Do you know people that are incarcerated because of the gospel? If they are, they're pretty small, and they would usually make the front page news. Are people getting pulled out of their homes and beaten for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know of a Christian right now in America here that has been put to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Again, we have a lot of people in this room. It may be happening, but it's happening in such a small way, and yet we are struck with fear about proclaiming the gospel. Now, I know there are some of you that find yourselves in difficult circumstances with regards to you proclaiming the gospel in your workplace. I work for myself in the catering, and I work for you in the church. I don't have to worry about persecution in either of them. But let me also tell you, I have shared with more than I can count the amount of customers about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't think there's a fear that they'll say, hey, get that garbage out of here, I'm not using you? I recognize what it means to live in a hostile world, and yet you know what we do? We are fearful from proclaiming the reason for the hope we have. Why? They're not even going to kill us. We just might not sit at the popular kids' table at lunch tomorrow. Get over it. God has given us a message. He's given us an opportunity, and we need to share it. And when suffering comes, when you may get some flack from your boss or a flack from some teachers or, or flack from friends, you give it to God and you say, God, you're supreme. You're going to have to figure this out. I stayed true to what you said. I gave the reason for the hope I have. I did so with gentleness and respect. You're going to have to take care of the rest. I will tell you that when we become a church that does that, watch out. You see, that's what the church of Acts was all about. And that's when they saw miracles. And they got put in prison. And they got released from prison. And they got put into, and this is an Acts, but the guys get put into lion's dens to be devoured. And the lions stay silent and don't eat a thing. You see, we don't give God the opportunity to do miracles in our life because we're not taking steps of faith because we're like the kid at the zoo who hears the roar of the lion and goes running and has no idea that that lion is behind chained fences, behind protective glass. And so the devil's out there roaring and, and he's making all this noise and all of this and we're struck in fear. And the Bible says, don't you know the devil's in my cage, God says. I'm the one in charge. And so do what I've called you to do. 
So where does this fear and intimidation come from? I want to, again, be practical with this because I want you to walk away with some real understanding this morning. Fear comes in a couple ways. Number one, write this down. Fear comes as a result of us focusing in on our circumstances instead of Christ. Remember the time when the disciples are out in the boat and Jesus says, I want you to go. I'll meet you on the other side. And then midway through the night, Jesus comes walking out on the water. And Peter, man, he's like, I want to be a part of that. That, that looks really cool, Jesus. I mean, that's water skiing without skis and a boat. That, that's cool. And so what Peter says is, Jesus, just tell me I can come out and I'll, I'll come out there with you. And Peter does. And he walks on water and it's him and Jesus. And, and what a glorious time that must have been for Peter that he's stepping out and every time he makes a step, another just assurance that God is greater than the waves and all of that. But notice in Matthew 14, 30, Peter's attention goes off of Jesus onto the circumstances around him. And it says that he was filled with fear. He was greatly frightened because he began to look at the waves and the wind around him. Some of you are struck with fear this morning because you're in your suffering and in your trials, you're looking at the waves, you're looking at the wind, you're looking at the circumstances around you instead of putting your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You see, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the waves, what happened? He got afraid and he failed. And some of us are looking at our circumstances and instead of looking at Christ, I want you to notice in that text, if you go back there sometime, that the wind didn't change. The waves hadn't changed, his perspective had. And some of you are so focused on in your circumstances that you're sinking. And here's the great word for you this morning. If you find yourself sinking and suffering this morning, Jesus is the one who pulls us out. So notice, that's the first, but notice the E there. I've put this together, I hope it's profitable, is when we embrace comfort over our character. Another thing that paralyzes our faith is fear over the loss of things. We worry about what we're going to lose. The disciples ran because they didn't want to lose their comfort. They didn't want to lose their place in the society. They didn't want to lose their lives. And so what they do is they go running away from a growth opportunity to stand with Christ and show their allegiance with Christ. They do so because it's more comfortable to not be known as a follower of Jesus. So Peter goes and he's walking around following Jesus from a distance and people are saying, aren't you Peter? Aren't you a follower of that Jesus? He said, no, 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 you got it wrong. Why does Peter do that? Because he wants to be comfortable. Why is it that we don't say anything when, when Jesus' name comes up, when someone uh, uses God's name in vain, that we don't stop it and say, hey, don't do that, that's my Savior. Why don't we say that? Because we want to be comfortable and instead of pursuing comfortability, Christ is reminding us and Peter's reminding us it's all about character. Maybe God wants to use some suffering to grow you. Many of us are not mature in Christ because when God brings trials and troubles into our lives, we go into preservation mode. We start worrying about our stuff. What about my money? And what about my house? And what about my family? And what about my standing in the company? And what about my popularity in the school? And what about, about my friends in the neighborhood? I, I got to make sure I keep these things. And so, so let's deal with that first. Let's cut, grab that up. And then, and then let's try to figure out a way to proclaim Christ. 
let's make sure we've got all our ducks in a row. We've got everything that, that's important to us. And so then we come out and we're like this chicken soup for the soul garbage. And we just come out with these just random thoughts of stuff. I hope you don't be offended about chicken soup. I've never read it, but it sounds like it's chicken soup. Okay? And we need to be careful of that. I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had worrying about the comfortable things in my life. What happens if the church goes through this? What happens if my business goes through this? What if my family goes through that? And I never ask the question, Lord, are you doing something in these suffering moments? Are you doing something to allow these trials so that I will endure by growing in perseverance, character, and hope? You see, we're in preservation mode instead of what I call elevation mode when suffering comes. You look at the life of Joseph and Joseph has one trial and one persecution after another. His brothers put him almost near death, put him into a pit, sell him to a group of traders. He goes and he gets elevated. Now he's in Potiphar's house. And right when things are going good, his wife accuses rape of him. He gets thrown into prison. He starts helping interpret dreams and stuff like that. And people say, we'll remember you. And year after year, he's in prison. Notice that God uses suffering in Joseph's life for the same reason he uses suffering in ours. Listen, why did he have to suffer at the hands of his brothers? Because God says, I've got a place for you in Egypt. And if your brothers don't do this hard suffering in your life, you'll never get handed off to some Ishmaelite traders to be in Egypt. Well, now I need to position you, Joseph. I need to get you closer to, uh, to Pharaoh. And so I need to kick you out of Potiphar's house. And you're going to do some suffering there because i got to get you over into the prison because that's our way in. That's the way I'm going to get you into Pharaoh's household. And so his suffering took him from one step to another step to another step. Have you realized, brothers and sisters, this morning that God may be using suffering because he's got something greater in store for you? That you really think that maybe God's going to take me somewhere that's going to allow for something greater? Notice next that fear comes when we allow for chaos instead of pursuing calm. Allowing for chaos instead of pursuing calm. What led the disciples and Peter to run? They had failed in an earlier command. You want to suffer without reason? Then just... Take on suffering when it comes with no thought in mind. Let the chaos ensue. And some of you right now are living life, and all is good, and everything's fine, and when that troubled message comes, that trouble or suffering comes, you're unprepared for it. So was Peter and the disciples. Jesus told them in the garden. That night he had said, in this world you're going to have trouble. And so when they get to the garden, he says, I want you to watch and pray. Jesus knew the bad moon was rising. Jesus knew trouble was on its way. And Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us today, you better watch and pray. Had they been watching and praying, their response would have been very different. And they would have brought God great glory. And what they brought themselves was shame. What Peter is announcing to us in the days to come is that God uses suffering. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. And amidst the line that we all know, Houston, we have a problem. Chaos ensues in the Nassau room. And one Nassau director says to another, he says, I believe this is the biggest and worst problem NASA's ever going to face. To which another man says, I believe this will be our finest hour. Do you look at suffering 
when trials come, when you suffer for righteousness sake, as Peter says, that it is the opportunity for Jesus to shine brighter and purer, for Jesus to have an opportunity to show himself utterly faithful? Or do you see suffering as a time of great calamity and chaos? In John 16, Jesus tells us we're going to have trouble. But take heart. Be of good courage. I'm the victor, he says. I'm the king. So there's nothing to fear. And so what that means is the final thing that fear produces is a reliance on self instead of the spirit. So Peter here has his most shameful times. He has suffered. And so what he's going to share with us in the, in the passage to come is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a choice. We can either run away in fear or we can rely on the spirit. And that's what Peter does. He relies on the Spirit in the days to come. When he writes this, he's relying on the Spirit. I believe Peter recognizes that because of a situation in Acts chapter 12. Peter, is to, we're told that James, the brother of John and the friend of Peter, has been killed at the hands of Herod. And now they go out looking for Peter and he's being hunted down. Talk about persecution. He's being hunted down. They grab him, they get him, and they throw him into prison. Does it say that he sits there and wrings his hands and says, why God, why, why would you allow this? No, the Bible says he prays. And we're told that the church prays. And in that moment in Acts chapter 12, in the middle of the night, while there are guards right next to him, he gets a poke on his side. And it's an angel. And in the moment when things are impossible, the God of the impossible does the possible. And he opens up the door and he takes away Peter's chains, and the angel leads him out to a house where the people are actually praying at that moment for Peter's release. And so God is glorified. The people of God are encouraged and strengthened, and Peter recognizes it is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We just need to release and let Jesus do the work. This is what Martin Luther meant when he these words. Listen to them. You've sung them, but listen to what they say. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of moral ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. The devil's craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same. And he will win the battle. But though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, he's grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, because one little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him, with us who sideth. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen?
See, when we take God at his word and live in light of that, what Peter is going to continue to tell us about suffering will change our perspective. Notice one final thing, and I'll close this morning, and we'll address these truths again, is that God's strategy is impacting. Now, what are we called to? It's tempting for us to say, okay, suffering's going to come. We're going to suffer for what is good. We're not to have fear. And so what that means is we endure hardship like a good soldier, and we just wait for glory. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says that in the darkest of times, Christ is going to shine brightest in you. Let me say that again. In the darkest of times, Christ is going to shine brightest in you. Amidst your suffering, you're going to reach, have an opportunity to reach the world like you never have before. I don't just take Peter's word for this, but I take it from an example of people just like you. When I was 14 years of age, my parents were just regular church-going people like yourself, working hard, going to church, serving the Lord. And they, then they lost their oldest son. The story goes, and I don't think I've ever shared this part of that story, but my, my, dad called, or my mom called my dad. My, my mom was at home when the police came to tell my mom that Chris had died. And my mom calls my dad at work. So my, my family lives in Hinkley. Five miles down the road is Waterman. My dad's there. And my mom says, Bill, you have to come home. Uh, Chris isn't where we thought he was. Chris has been in a car accident. He's dead. And my dad says, okay, I'm coming home. And, and of course, the shock of all of that is he finishes up whatever business is at the store. And he gets in the car. And my dad reminds us of this truth often. He says, when I was driving home, I couldn't even see what was before me. My, te my tears were overwhelming. God, how could you do this? God, this is my son. God, this is the boy that I've grown up from a little boy. This is my, my first boy. God, why? God, God, God. And tears overwhelmed my father. And midway from Waterman to Hinkley, somewhere in that five-mile time, God said, Bill, pull the car over. Pull it together, Bill. You're my son. I told you in this world you're going to have trouble, Bill. And my dad said in that moment, God, reinforce this truth. In your darkest hour, Bill, I shine brightest. So get the hope. The hope is there. Rely on me. Trust in me. And my dad said from that moment, the suffering hurt, yeah, still. But in that moment, he saw the purpose for Chris's death. We go, to the, we go to the hospital to identify Chris's body, and we come back home. And I remember being in my bedroom. It's about 11 o'clock. And we had heard that the senior and junior class of our high school, about 150 students, are down the street just sobbing with one another, suffering together. They had lost their friend, their classmate. And they had gone from their house. They had heard that our family had made it back home. And they came to the front yard. It was a beautiful September morning. And they come to our front yard, and this guy, he's not a pastor. This guy's an immigrant with an eight, eighth grade education who's just lost his son. I marvel at this. My goodness, how could this man do this? And 150 students are there. And my dad from our porch says, the Badal family does not grieve as the world does, who has no hope. Let me tell you about the hope in Jesus. And he shares with all of my brother's classmates, with my classmates, with boldness, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, and kids came to know Christ that day. In our darkest hour, Christ shines brightest. But, notice what Peter says, because he uses that word in our passage, but, you want that? You want to be impactful in your time of suffering? you got to set Christ, you got to honor Christ as Lord. We'll get into this later, but let me just give you these points. If you want to suffer right, it's going to involve spirit-filled dedication. You've got to say when you are suffering, this is bad, but Christ is greater. This hurts, but Christ is more glorious. When I am low, Christ is raised up. That in my moments of suffering, it is Christ who is most glorious. It is Christ who receives more praise and more honor. Can I tell you, the singular worst day of the Bedal family's life has been the greatest tool of more growth in our life than ever before. I'm here today, I am here today because of September 17, 1990. God says, you want to know what it means to suffer on purpose? Raise Christ up high. Because when you do, you're going to change lives. So you're in hardship. How does this spell out? Very quickly. When you suffer, people are going to watch. They're watching. How are you suffering? Are you, are you pointing your finger at God and shaking your fist at God? Or are you humbly receiving the suffering as an opportunity for you to shine brightly? Then what the Bible says is that people are going to come and they're going to ask you a question. How in the world can you have hope? And then you start talking. And it leads to a, what I call a scripture-based affirmation. You give the reason. You give the reason. Here's the reason why I have hope. His name is Jesus. The reason why I can endure hardship is because my Savior endured hardship for me. That now I have fellowship with God. I have a peace that passes all understanding. I know that God works all things out for the good and that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You don't think the world's going to take notice of that? You don't think the world's going to say, that's a lot different than what I hear from Oprah. Tell me a little bit more about this. This is where we become salt and light in a world of darkness. That when they see us endure hardship and struggling, we take the word to them and we say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me give you the reason for the hope I have. It will then lead to what I call the sanctified application. i got to land this plane whether in times of plenty or in want, the thrust of what Peter is saying is not go and, and find a uh, evangelism tool that gives you step by step the process. What it says is in this world you're gonna have trouble and when you find trouble, when you have hurts, you just put those in your filing cabinet and you be reminded of those times of trouble and you raise Christ high and you say, Christ, in this time of greatest sorrow, I'm gonna lift you high and I'm gonna make you the most glorious in my life. And then when people ask you how you're doing it, you just take those files and say, you know what, this is what I do. This is what you hear. Why do I use stories of my life? Because I take the suffering and the trials of my life and I say, let me tell you how glorious Jesus is. And it impacts you. Why? Because we're all going through struggles. And we need encouragement from one another that Jesus is truly overcoming the world and he has through the cross. And so we share it. And so what does that lead us to do, whether in suffering or in want? Notice what he says back in verse 13. Be zealots for what is good. 
So you're having a good week? Praise God. Do good. Things are going well in your marriage? Praise God. Do good. Your family's in order? Praise God. Keep doing good. Obey. Serve God and serve your fellow man. But what happens when the marriage falls apart? What happens when the kids run away? What happens when the mortgage payment does, goes unpaid? What happens when cancer is told to you in the doctor's office? What happens when you lose a loved one? What happens when you experience immense amount of pain? You do good and you raise Jesus high. It is when we suffer that way that the Bible says get ready because you're going to have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope you have. Do it with gentleness and do it with respect. And when you do that and you suffer well, God is glorified. And I want to be a part of a church that glorifies God, don't you? I want to be a part of a set of believers that, that recognize that suffering is coming. And we're ready for it. Because we're ready to use the opportunity to share Christ with a lost world. I pray you're ready for that as well. Let's pray. Father God. I've shared my heart this morning, and I pray that my heart hasn't gotten in the way of your word. Lord, there's a lot more we're going to see in the days to come from this text. We didn't deal as we usually do with different words and, and, and focusing on different phrases as much today, Lord, as we usually do. But I pray that this opportunity to speak on the issue of suffering, our preparedness for that suffering our understanding that in this world we're going to have trouble, that we can take heart, that you have overcome the world. I pray, Lord, that that would prepare our hearts this week. Lord, we don't know what a day might bring. And so, Lord, we need to be prepared. It's been a while. It's been a while, Lord, since we've lost a one we've loved and had to suffer through the loss of someone. It's been a long time, Lord, since I remember hearing someone losing their job because they've stood for their faith. But those times are coming. Lord, it's been a while since we've heard someone has, has walked away from the faith and, and, and brought great harm to the world around their loved ones. Lord, it doesn't happen very often, but it's going to in greater, in greater uh, numbers in the days to come. And Lord, I just pray that we as a church are ready. I pray that we would not seek comfort but character. That we would pursue your word instead of the wonders of this world. I pray that we would be ready because, Lord, in the darkest hour that we might be able to speak loudest and proclaim with greater authority the hope that we have. Lord, I pray that we're ready for suffering. Equip us for it, Lord. Make us, watch, make us watchful and prayerful because the hour of our testing is drawing near. And, Lord, I pray that in that hour that we might be bold and we might be effective and that we will recognize that while the suffering may hurt for a season, that the greater result of our faith that is worth more than gold and precious stones may be seen as genuine and valuable in your sight. So Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Direct us. Lead us out into this world of suffering ready to do what is good so that you might be brought glory. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for overcoming the world on our behalf. Now let us live in light of it, we pray. Amen.